I start, I just want to say I love that last song uh, for lots of reasons. Today, in our world, particularly in our culture, there's so much confusion about identity. And as the church has uh, kind of abdicated the discussion of identity to the culture, they've taken it. Culture has taken that discussion. But that song right there is full of some deep truth. Who am I? Who tells me who I am? The culture tell me who I am? Do I tell myself who I am? No, God tells me who I am. Jesus tells me who I am, and I'm loved by the Father. So if you have any questions about who you are, that song has it all right there. You are who God tells you you are, and you're loved by him. Well, this past uh, Wednesday, I think it was, I, was, I stopped by the Panera up in Geneva right around the road to pick up some lunch. I was, on, I was on my way home, been in meetings all morning, on my way home to work on this sermon. And so I went through the drive-thru and uh, made my order, and as I... It was a long line of cars, so I had to wait, and I noticed that the car right in front of me looked like it had a Chapel Street sticker, like a decal on the back window. Oh, looks like a Chapel Street person. I was trying to see if I could tell who it was. I really couldn't. It was a man driving the car. Couldn't get a good view of him. So he picked up his order, and I got to the window, and I gave my credit card to the uh, attendant there, and the attendant goes, no, no, the guy in front of you paid for your lunch, paid for your order. And he just handed me my, my bag of soup and sandwich. And I looked ahead to see if I could wave to the guy or something, but he was gone. And I looked in the rearview mirror to see if I could, like, maybe pass on a generosity to someone behind me and buy their lunch, but there was no car behind me at all. <laughs> so I drove home and had my free lunch. But as I ate that lunch, again, preparing to work on this sermon, I found myself asking um, a question, who, who does that? Where does that kind of spontaneous act of generosity come from? Maybe he saw me in his rearview mirror, recognized me. Oh, that's Pastor Brian. Maybe he didn't. Maybe it was just random. I was just some random guy to him. But what makes someone do that? Where does generosity begin? Where does it start in our lives? We're in a series right now called The Way, as you all know. And we've been studying and looking at uh, God's Word about how these early followers of Jesus, the very first church, which is called People of the Way, how they lived, what they believed, what made them so different uh, in the world around them, and what we can learn from them. And we've looked at things like the way of abiding, Jesus said, abide in me, abide in my word, abide in my love. I'm the vine, you're the branches. We looked at things like the way of love or fellowship, the way of service last week. And today, we're looking at uh, what we're calling the way of generosity. Now, we're going to look into Acts chapter 4 to one paragraph. But before we do that, let me give you a little context uh, before we read what we're going to read. This is just uh, a few weeks or months after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the people of the way, this movement is exploding. We're told back in Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 were added to their number in one day. And then we're told in Acts 3 that uh, there's a lame man begging at the temple where all the, the, these believers were going, where Peter and John were going, and they, he's healed uh, through the apostle Peter, which creates more momentum for this movement. In Acts chapter 4, we're told that the number of men swelled to 5,000. That's just the men. And most scholars believe if you add the women and children and young people to that number, that the total number of believers now, just months after the resurrection, is approaching between 10 and 20,000 people. So it's mushrooming, it's growing day by day. And this causes great concern for those who had opposed Jesus and who made sure that he went to the cross. 
Uh, so we see the first crisis in the movement of the early church people of the way. We're told in Acts 4 that the priests, the temple guards, and the Sadducees arrest Peter and John and demand that they stop preaching about Jesus because this movement is, is just taking over everything. But these two men, even under threats of punishment and imprisonment, are filled with the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts tells us, and with great boldness and with respect, they just simply refuse to stop. They say, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Do to us whatever you want, but we cannot and will not stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. But the religious officials are, are afraid to hold them because they know this movement is powerful now, and there's all these people out there that, that uh, are, are proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. And so they let them go, and the, the, the believers gather together for worship and celebration. And we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is important. We'll come back to this later. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And that leads us to what we're going to study today. It begins in the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 32. You can look on the screens. And now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, uh, I said the title of this message, which is part six in our series called The Way, is The Way of Generosity. And before you let your mind run ahead with what we're going to talk about, I want you to see that it doesn't start where you think it's going to start. This paragraph, this teaching, doesn't begin with our money. In fact, it doesn't even begin with generosity at all. It begins somewhere else. And where it begins is what, what I'm calling the, the way of unity. The way of unity. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I uh, went to see the musical production, Fiddler on the Roof, at the Lyric Opera in Chicago. Has anybody been to the Lyric Opera in Chicago? I mean, we're, I'm not like a huge op, uh, musical fan or whatever, but whenever we go, I, I, I enjoy it tremendously. Um, this was spectacular. Fiddler on the Roof is a great story, a classic story. We recognize more of the music than we thought we were going to recognize. The, the singing was amazing, the voices, the talent, the dancing was entertaining. But driving the whole thing, of course, was the orchestra, which you don't really see from the audience because it's down in the orchestra pit, right? Uh, and I did a little research on this, and that lyric opera orchestra has between 80 and 100 musicians playing 44 different instruments, all of which are made from different materials, are shaped differently, and they make different sounds. I mean, you have violins. You have bassoons, which look really cool. I'd love to play one of those things or learn how to play one of those things. You have piccolos, which is just funny to think about, little tiny baby flutes. And many more strings and horns and percussion instruments are involved. But together, under the guidance of a conductor and all following the same score, they produce together beautiful and powerful music. And many of you are musicians, know a lot more about this than I do. The point is they're all different. They all make different sounds, but they can be unified. 
Verse 32, now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. Now, as I mentioned, this is a really large group of people, 10, 15, maybe 20,000 people. And the phrase in English, full number, is one word in ancient Greek. It's the word plethos, from which we get our word plethora. It just means big bunch of people, throng, crowd, multitude. And then like a great orchestra, they are unified because they're following the guidance of a conductor and they're all following the same score. Now, we know from what Luke has already told us that the conductor is the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had come upon them. Jesus had promised he would send the Holy Spirit as their guide, and as their comforter, as their teacher, and the Holy Spirit fell on them and came at the day of Pentecost and filled them as they prayed together. Remember, I read that just moments ago. And the score they are following is simply the gospel. We learned in Acts 2 that they were devoted together to the teaching of the apostles. They were devoted to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayer, but they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, the gospel. Now, it's important to see that unity here, that when the New Testament talks about unity, it's not talking about conformity. There's a big difference between conformity and unity. Most of these early believers were Jewish background people. They were Jews, but not all of them. Some came from other cultures. Some came from other ethnic groups. Uh, most of them were of lower economic class, but not all of them. Some of them owned houses and had property, were wealthy. Some of them were men. Some were women. Some were old. Some were young. So the early church, the people of the way, were a diverse group, and they became more and more diverse as the gospel spread out in the whole Gentile world. But they were of one heart and one soul. Diverse, all different, but of one heart and one soul. In fact, later in the New Testament, we see that an issue arose in the church in Corinth where people were arguing about who their favorite teachers were. Some said, I prefer Paul. Some say, I like Peter, or I like Apollos, or I just follow Jesus. They were arguing about this. It would be like here in Chapel Street, people arguing about who their favorite preacher is. I won't make you raise your hand or anything. But Paul confronts this division because he doesn't like it. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And I believe one of the great strengths of this church, and some of you have been here a long time, some are new, some, one of the great strengths of Chapel Street over the many years is that we have been able to be united on the essentials of our faith and refuse to argue about that which is non-essential to our faith. There are lots of interesting issues that surround our faith, the application of our faith in the world. We tend not to argue about those things. We remain united in what is essential to our faith. We're all different. Some of us are violins. Some are bassoons. I said bassoons, not buffoons. (laughs) Some are piccolos. You can decide what instrument you are, but we're united, all different. We all look different. We sound different. But we're all united in heart and soul by the conductor, who is the Holy Spirit, and by the score, which is the gospel, the teaching of the apostles. Second thing I see in this paragraph is the way of sharing, the way of sharing. Now, most of you know my wife and I are now grandparents. We have two granddaughters. The oldest is Emery, who is just over two years old. But Emery now has a little sister named Eden, who's four months old. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, just a shameless way to get my grandkids on that. You're right. That's pretty much true. But like most two-year-olds, Emery, the older one, has already learned the concept of mine. 
She knows how to say mine. She knows things that belong to her. That's mine. That's mine, Papa. That's mine. But with the advent of a little sister, she's having to learn a much more complicated, difficult concept, the concept of sharing, right? If you've been a parent, you know that you don't have to teach your kids to say mine. They just know how to do that. They seem born with the, with the capacity to understand mine. You do have to teach them sharing. You ever wonder why that is? It's universal. Well, I think it's because the concept of sharing runs counter to our inborn selfish human nature. We know how to be selfish. We don't know how to be unselfish, naturally. Mine is ownership. Sharing is the opposite of ownership. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Notice that, everything in common, that is, they were sharing. Why? Because no one said the things that belonged to them belonged to him or were, his, were their own. Now, this is not saying that ownership is somehow bad or evil or sinful, that we should not have possessions. In fact, I think you can make an argument that until you understand what ownership is, you don't really understand what sharing is. It's not saying it's wrong or bad. This is not a kind of Christian communism. This is koinonia. Remember that great word we looked at a couple of weeks ago? That means fellowship. The ideology of communism says, what's yours is mine. Koinonia says, what's mine is yours. And that's a totally different thing. This verse is simply describing a community of people that had a radically different attitude toward possessions. I once heard a pastor speak on the topic of generosity. And in the middle of the sermon, he asked everybody in the congregation, this is back when everybody carried wallets in their purse or their pocket, he said, I want you to take out your wallet and give it to the person next to you. So they all did that. He said, now we're going to pass the offering plate around. I want you all to give the way you've always wanted to give. <laughs> I thought it was really clever because he's making a point. It's a lot easier to feel free to be generous when you don't think of what you're being generous with as your own, right? Notice that this sharing, nowhere in this paragraph do we see the sharing was required by God. It wasn't a law. It wasn't required by the Holy Spirit. The apostles weren't teaching, you must share with each other. It was voluntary. It was a spontaneous movement of sharing because they had a deep understanding that everything they owned was a gift from God himself. And they saw themselves as just stewards of God's generosity. They shared with each other because their desire to love one another and care for one another was greater than their need to own things and possess things. The way of sharing. Thirdly, we see here the way of grace. The way of grace. Back to my Back to my free lunch that I enjoyed this past Wednesday. What that anonymous chapel streeter gave me, and maybe I'll find out today who it was, um, but I don't think I will. But that anonymous chapel streeter gave me was not just soup and sandwich, which was good. It wasn't just the amount of money that my bill came to. That actually gave me a great sermon story for this week because I was working on this sermon. But what he gave me really was a little slice of grace. Just a little slice of grace. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I want you to see the flow of thought here. With great power, the apostles were 
preaching the resurrection of Jesus. The, the phrase great power, the word for great in Greek was mega, and we use it now like mega shark or mega mall or whatever. Mega means really, really big. The word for power in Greek was dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. So it's saying with, with great power, with mega dynamite, now that's power, they were preaching the resurrection of Jesus, giving their testimony, and that word is marturion or martyr, which simply means being a witness to the resurrection. They were preaching the gospel. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus uh, said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The last thing he said before his ascension when he said, but you will receive power, same word, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, same word, in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the result was great grace, mega grace, abundant grace was upon them all. I want to focus on that phrase, great grace was upon them all. Grace and the word is charis in Greek. It means gift. And theologically speaking, grace is the gift of God's favor, the unmerited, undeserved gift of God's favor. It's the very center of the gospel. The most famous verse in the Bible probably is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So therefore, Jesus is the generosity of God made manifest, and the gospel itself is the generosity of God. See, I, I think we often struggle. We use the word grace a lot. It's a church word. It's a Christian word. It's a great word. We use it a lot. But I think we struggle to really understand or experience grace. Here's why. Pastor Tim Keller has written, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. And I think we struggle on both sides of that equation. I mean, we understand it intellectually, but on the one hand, I think uh, we, we, we say, well, sure, I need to be forgiven. But what we really think, and I think even people in the church think, well, you know, I know I'm not perfect. Uh, I'm not perfect, but I'm not a terrible person either. What I really need is just to sort of clean up the edges, the fringes of my life, and be a little better version of me. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. It says we are, without Christ, we are dead, spiritually dead, without hope, and without God in the world, broken. On the other hand, because we don't experience and we don't acknowledge our brokenness and sinfulness, neither can we then fully experience the goodness and power of the grace of Jesus. So we live somewhere kind of in between both those, both those uh, truths. The Bible teaches us that it is by grace that we are forgiven, by grace that we are made new, by grace we are adopted as his children. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. By grace, we have each received spiritual gifts, the ability to serve one another in any way at all. First Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The Apostle Paul wrote that it is grace that fuels and empowers all of the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Grace is the gift of God through Jesus. Grace is the sustaining work of the Spirit. Grace is the fuel that powers our Christian lives. 
And Luke says it was great grace, abundant grace that was upon them all. And it was this grace, I believe, that produced what I'm calling the way of surrender. The way of surrender. Verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called, the apostle, uh, called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native to Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I want to point out three things about their generosity. First, their generosity is both collective and personal. It was collective and personal. Luke says, as many as were owners of lands and property. Probably was a smaller percentage of people in that culture who were actually affluent enough to actually own things. Uh, many people were poor. But those who were, they sold and they gave. Their, generos- their generosity was collective. It was kind of contagious. And I believe generosity is contagious. It was like they saw needs. Hey, we can get this done. We t- collectively, let's get this done. You sell that. I sell this. We'll get this done. In Chapel Street, we've seen some of that kind of contagious generosity in recent years. But it was also personal. One guy is mentioned by name. Joseph, nicknamed Barnabas, son of encouragement, a Levite from Cyprus. He sold a field. And he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So it was collective and personal. Secondly, I noticed that their generosity was genuine. Like I said before, there's no sense at all that these early followers of the way had to be told to be generous. They weren't told anywhere yet, well, you need to give X percent of your... None of that. They weren't being pressured into doing anything. Uh, Their generosity was simply... Willing and joyful and genuine. Second Corinthians 9, Paul tells us, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So back to my question, where does generosity begin? Does it begin with your bank account? You know, if you have enough in there, then you can, no. Does it begin with your investment portfolio? If you have enough, no. It begins where? begins in the heart. It doesn't begin with a rule or a law. It begins in the heart because that's where the Holy Spirit dwells and that's where the grace of Jesus brings life in the heart. We also um, see that later in the New Testament, oh, the, the next thing I would say, that their generosity was also sacrificial. There's a curious phrase that happens twice here. They laid the money at the apostles' feet. They sold, and then they brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. A very very interesting phrase. I think it's a picture of of surrender. The people, they're they're saying, this this that I have in my hands does not belong to me. And so I lay it down. I lay it down for God to use however he sees fit. Now, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul does teach that generosity is a form of obedience that is a form that we can be intentional about it, that we can actually grow in our generosity. Uh, several years ago, I uh, knew a couple here at Chapel Street. Uh, they've since moved away uh, to a different state. But the, the husband told me that he and his wife had met in college, got married <laughs> shortly after college, and then subsequent to that became followers of Jesus. And then they began to learn about their faith and grow, and they decided somewhere early on in their marriage, maybe two years into marriage, that they wanted to give 
and they started by giving 10%, which is quite extraordinary in our culture. For anyone to give 10% of their income is very extraordinary. But they decided to start there. And then, after they did that for a year, the next year they felt just compelled to add 1% to that giving. And they added 1%. He said that then they did it again the next year. So it went from 10% to 11% to 12%. And I said, hey, how long ago was that? And he said, well, we've been doing that for 30 years, adding 1% a year for 30 years to 10%. So we can grow. We can grow in our gener generosity. But notice, none of this movement of what could be called radical sharing and generosity was because of guilt or manipulation. It was simply in response to great grace, and great grace was upon them all. It was the work of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, the Apostle Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 9, and God is able to make all grace, there's that word again, abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your har the harvest of your righteousness. You will, will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. I think I had a chance to mention here a few weeks ago that back in the summer, uh, late August through early September, I made a trip uh, with one of Chapel Street's mission partners, a group called the Timothy Initiative, to uh, Dubai in the Middle East and then on to Nepal in Asia. We spent uh, three days in Dubai at a gathering of church leaders from around that part of the world, Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. Uh, I actually had a chance to lead a seminar on leadership with um, men and women from 20 different African nations. It's just an amazing experience. Um, but we were there for three days. And then we went to Nepal to watch church planting on the ground in that part of the world, what God's doing there, and some amazing things. That one organization, the Timothy Initiative, is training 14,000 church planters in Nepal, a place where it's illegal to try to lead someone to Christ who's not a Christian already. It's fascinating. It's amazing. Now, as you may know, Dubai is one of the richest places on the face of the earth. It is. It includes uh, the tallest building in the world, which is called the Burj Khalifa, 160 stories tall. It's 1,000 feet taller than the Willis Tower in Chicago. A half a mile tall. There's a 75-story uh, building in, in Dubai that's twisted. They build stuff just because they can in Dubai. There's a 25-story hotel that's shaped like the crescent moon. That's a real thing. It's an actual building, 25 stories tall. The hotels are amazing. We stayed in a hotel called the Intercontinental Dubai Festival City. Okay. In the lobby, there were, there were pillars of marble, that, not too shabby, right? There are multiple pools with palm trees. I sat right next to that pool, suffering at a relatively high level. <laughs> Actually, it was like 108 degrees there, so it was very, very hot. Um, rooms there at that hotel were between two and $300 a night. Re remember that, two and $300 a night. Nepal, on the other hand, is, one, is the poorest country in all of Asia and the 12th poorest country in the world. The minimum wage in the, Nepal is $123 U.S. a month. And many of the believers there, the new believers there, live on far less than that. But while we were in Nepal, the director of the ministry told me that, he goes, remember the hotel you were in in, in Dubai? I said, yeah, pretty fancy, pretty, pretty nice. He said, well, the Nepali churches paid for all those hotel rooms. The churches in the church of Nepal, these people living in poverty, 
volunteered to pay for every hotel room for all 250 guests that were in Dubai just because they wanted to. I was like, what? How? He said, they just wanted to. I think it was because, with perspective here, what, what we're learning here in Acts chapter 4. I think it's because they were of one heart and one soul. I think it's because they don't think of anything they have as belonging to them. But most of all, I think it's because they've come out of backgrounds that knew nothing of grace. And they now have experienced the great grace of Jesus who loves them, who died for them, who lives in them by his spirit. And it just flows out of them. So when it comes to generosity, I know how many of us respond because I do it myself, which is we find ourselves thinking, you know, I, I know, I know, I, re I really could be more generous. I really should be more generous. But I think the Holy Spirit tells us right here, stop, stop. Just don't do that. Don't sit there and try to make yourself get more generous. Rather, ask this, I need, I want to experience His great grace. Because when we know his great grace, the grace of Jesus in our lives, our hearts are set free and generosity just happens. Genuine generosity, joyful generosity, great generosity is the product of and is only the product of great grace. Bow with me as we close. Lord, thank you today for your word, for this beautiful picture of our spiritual ancestors, people of the way, who responded to your great grace with genuine and joyful generosity. May we too become more and more aware, experiencing at deeper and deeper levels your great grace for each one of us, and may this grace set our hearts free to become more and more generous. May we be people of the way. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Sorry. Benediction today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And we go now in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, for our sakes became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Amen. Have a great day.